0: Welcome back to Careers Explained. Today, we're talking with Gabrielle Morrow about her career path and current role. She received her bachelor's degree from Siena College in Communications and her master's degree in social work from Adelphi University. Her previous work experience includes working as a teacher's aide at Nassau Boises, a social work case manager at Bethany House of Nassau County Corporation, and a coordinator of neurology and critical care at Northwell Health. She is currently a Senior Patient and Customer Experience Specialist for Neurosurgery Patients and Families at Northwell Health. Welcome Gabrielle, and thanks for coming on today.
1: Hello, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited.
0: (laughs) Can you start by describing what you do in your current role?
1: Okay, yeah. So I'm a clinical social worker by trade, but I work in a department called Patient and Family Centered Care, similar to a patient relations department under uh, patient and customer experience. So my role is to provide psychotherapeutic support for all of our neurosurgery patients and families. And then I also um, oversee the programming for our out-of-state international neurosurgery patients. So we have a bunch of neurosurgeons who come from, um, who have very like niche procedures that they do And those neurosurgeons have a large following from out of state and internationally. So I'm the one who kind of coordinates the services, provides support. It could be as simplistic as finding hotels to how are we going to manage having these really um, difficult chronic illnesses and providing that psychotherapeutic support.
0: Gotcha. And when you talk about this programming, can you give some examples of what you do to create that?
1: Yep. So I actually, it's very unique. Um, I learned about having this position through one of the senior leaders in the hospital, and they realized that they needed someone who was going to be that frontline person to kind of connect the gaps between prior to your procedure and then throughout. So think of it similar to a very high level um, navigator. So the role is you know, connecting with the family and the patient prior to the procedure. You introduce the role and then whatever they need from the hotels to um, psychological support to financial to when are their appointments. I kind of bridge all of those gaps. And then I talk to them prior to the procedure, provide support. Once they're inpatient, I am following them from a patient and customer experience perspective because you think people come from the middle of nowhere somewhere that's a very rural community and then they're going to a you know, trauma center in New York and you're kind of right outside New York City where the hospital is and it's very stressful. So even navigating to their appointment is what I do. And then while they're in the procedure, my role is to kind of communicate and bridge those gaps between the clinical team and the family. So if you think of it very much more simplistically, it's navigation. It's the communicator. It's the messenger. It is the, gl- I am the glue to make sure that it's a streamlined communication.
0: It's super helpful to understand how much goes into that. So really from the start of their journey through it all, you are the point person for all right. their needs, not just. The scheduling that you mentioned, but also the psychological support, anything along the way.
1: Correct. And that's why it's so unique because we have patient navigators in the hospital, but they have more health administration roles. And what they did strategically when they hired me is having the social work background. So a lot of my colleagues are masters in health administration. They do provide support from a psychological end, but they're doing more of um, patient relations and health administration. There's the dogs skipping around. (laughs) And my position is more of having a clinical social worker. Because think, these neurosurgery procedures, patients are okay one moment, and then they're not okay. And we really found from a strategic standpoint that there's a need to have that therapy. And it just complements one another.
0: Totally. And as your role describes, for both the patients and the families, it's, I'm sure, traumatic to watch that shift from an outside perspective. And can you describe sort of what that looks like on a day-to-day or maybe weekly basis of like, how many people are you working with? How does it entail your in your schedule? Yeah,
1: So we always joke around in healthcare because you may have a plan of what your day is like, and then it completely shifts. So the ideal on paper plan would be to see about eight to 10 patients in a day. Now, a lot of people who are going into healthcare may think, wow, that's really not that many patients. But when you're spending that one-on-one time throughout the day, it's actually a lot of people to be supporting in a 10-hour span. So I work um, four 10-hour shifts, reason being because a lot of our patients' procedures are early in the morning and then they're not out until later in the evening. So that's another strategic point. Um, So again, The day looks like, okay, I'm going to go into interventional radiology. A lot of our patients are getting vascular procedures from a neuro standpoint. I'm going in, I'm checking the list about how many patients are coming in. And then for each procedure back to back, I'm connecting with the patient, the family. And that takes about half an hour. Then once the surgeon comes in, he knows I'm good to go. They're supported. He checks in with them. Anesthesia comes in, nursing care, all the clinical work and then physically and emotionally hand-holding the family until the patient goes into the back to the OR and then I'm supporting them. So that could take about the half hour before then half hour or so to kind of support and keep them calm. And then I see them again an hour later. So it's usually like a three hour span, these procedures specifically for neuro huh. you know, they're 45 minute procedures. If you're having something like a spinal surgery, which is neuro still, it could be a five hour day. So again, this is where it kind of gets confusing about the day because I'm doing that. And then I'm getting a phone call from my department. Oh, um, a team member needs support. So to add to my role, I am a part of Team Lavender which is a response group for our staff. Especially in the COVID times, we really needed to provide the psychological support for our team members. So it is a crisis. Call they almost call like a code, and one of our team members who is a clinician immediately goes to see that team member and provide support. It doesn't always have to be a patient who passed away or something tragic happened. You could be having something personally going on, and we go in and check up on you. So the day is interesting because I'll be in the procedure rooms providing support, and then oh, someone needs a team lab, or then you're running down, and then it's three o'clock and you have a meeting. So every day looks different. I think that's something I want to highlight to everyone. That's what's fun about healthcare is you don't know what's going to happen. So in the ideal world, I'm in the procedure areas, I'm in our caregiver center, you know, bringing our families over there to provide support and just check in and find a safe space for them. And then I'm running to a team lavender and then I'm running to do a presentation for uh, new employees. So it's, it's really unique. And I think that That's something that interested me about this role because as social workers, a lot of times people think, oh, hospital, discharge planning, case management. And that's not everything you have to do. There are social workers in different capacities and outpatient offices and doing something like being a part of patient and customer experience. We need mental health workers to be in those roles. So it's hard to tell you
0: what the day is because you just don't know. (laughs) The day is packed and the day can change in a second. And when you talk about, you started with kind of, you'll see maybe eight patients in that 10 hour span, Mm -hmm. but you're spending maybe these three to five hour chunks given it may be interrupted by like a lavender call when you're in during the procedure, when you're with the family, what does it look like in terms of your role there? How are you supporting them generally?
1: Yep. So I actually, um, utilize a lot of holistic modalities. So what that would look like is if um, my patient is having a panic attack or having severe anxiety prior to procedure, we know that a lot of us um, have anxiety prior to anything, let alone a a large procedure that may or may not go well. I utilize a lot of holistic support. I am a Reiki practitioner, which is um, more like healing energy work. And I will do guided imagery with the patients and the families really just kind of calm them down, bring them into a better space of peace. So that's a lot of what I'm doing. And then I'm also supporting a lot of our patients do have some, um, you know, cognitive disabilities. sometimes, you know, regarding the brain, sometimes there are some delays that occur because we're suffering in some type of way so a lot of it is relaying back what the doctors are saying to them so my role is really to make sure that the patients and the families understand the plan of care and then to complement it i am providing that psychotherapeutic support which really includes you know being present and it's it seems silly but i think sometimes having someone who is not you know the white a lot of us think of white coat syndrome so when they see the doctors and the nurses they're anxious so just having someone that's there um, is soothing in itself. So really it's that therapeutic presence. It's providing the guided imagery, the deep breathing, the lavender inhalers that I use, um, if appropriate medically yes. and making sure that communication is clear. And well, then it's all, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's so cool, but keep going. <laughs> Yep. And it's just, you know, you think that in healthcare system, and I speak to my surgeons about this all the time, our patients and families don't know the ins and outs. So sometimes it's just explaining, you're going back here, this is what the procedure room is going to look like. I take pictures of the room sometimes, similar to what you would do as a child life specialist. You show the child prior to the procedure, you know, I would want someone to show me this is what it's going to look like. And it's really just kind of educating the entire time and being that go-to person. It's, it's all about that support.
0: That's amazing that you help prepare them emotionally (laughs) before anything even happens. They're ready to go into it. And then during really having someone hold their hand throughout that process is such a unique role. As you said, then you mentioned other roles like the lavender role, but then also Presentation for new patients. What are your yeah. most common, biggest roles? Okay,
1: <laughs> for presentations or uh, my roles in general.
0: Your role in general. <laughs> what are big? It sounds like patients. Patient it's, work kind of number one. Two yep. lavender. So yeah. that's a lot. I know.
1: Big one. I'm sorry. It's, it it may confuse everyone, and you know, please. It's it's. I think that's what makes it fun. Is there's so many roles and many hats. So the main position is providing that support and logistics for our patients and families. Second is Team Lavender Responder, which is support for staff. And then you're referring to employee assistance program if needed. Mm -hmm. And the third would be the educational piece. So we've seen a rise in, um, I would say, gaps in support for people who have mental illness. And we know that that's a large, a large problem. So unfortunately we do have some situations where um, we need to have crisis intervention and for it to teach our staff how to support those patients from a behavioral health standpoint. So the third part of my role is providing educational forums, um, which is actually through New York state. It's a crisis management techniques. And that's really to make sure that our team in the hospital is educated on how to handle mental health crises. So it could be if someone's going to physically um, come towards you. But really, the main idea is to keep the patients at that zero to 60 mile per hour um, route. Just imagine it's zero to 100. So zero is the patient so calm and happy. And 100 is they're attacking staff physically. And now we're getting to a violent situation. So my role is to teach and empower staff to be able to de-escalate situations for our um, behavioral health patients. So those are the three main roles. It's,
0: it's a lot. <laughs> three main hats, and you're doing more than that at times, but as you said, it keeps it interesting, you know, and no, those who don't want a boring same thing every day, you get, you get to mix it up, lots of different interactions. Mm-hmm. And- on the programming for educating staff, how frequently are you working on those types of tasks?
1: Yep. So I'm usually teaching uh, probably twice a month because we have, um, it's called New Beginnings through Northwell Health. So it's an educational platform that all of our new employees have to go through and it's on Tuesdays. So usually I'll do it on once a week or you know, once a month, twice a month, whatever they need. I actually work closely with security. They're the ones who also teach it. So it's, again, it's really cool because I'm noticing within our health system specifically, um, and Northwell is very large throughout New York state. They're really pushing that additional mental health services. So I love complimenting, you know, my security team who are, uh, you know, retired uh, law enforcement, and then kind of collaborating
0: and melding. It's it's a nice mix. So yeah. You get to work with so many different groups from translating the doctor's messages to the patients and the families to security and staff. You really touch all kind of groups within the healthcare sphere, it sounds like. Uh, Correct. So what do you like and find challenging about the role? Okay. So my favorite
1: part of the job is being an integral part in someone's life. And that is something that I think is part of the human experience. So I think that I I really like, go home and I feel fulfilled and I sometimes feel defeated, but I think that there's something about feeling, having fulfillment in your role that's important. You could make all the money in the world, but when you go home, it's like, what impact am I making? So I think that's my favorite part. Oftentimes, these patients are complete strangers and then, you know, I'm supporting them during the most difficult time in their life. So that's my favorite part. Um, The most challenging, I would think, is navigating a complex health system that doesn't always have the funding for things that I find most important. Um, I think that it's really difficult to navigate a patient coming from another state and they have to pay out of pocket a lot of money And that's really frustrating for me. And I find it an ethical dilemma on my end. And I work, I speak really candidly with a lot of our neurosurgeons who feel the same way. And again, we we understand that our uh, healthcare system in the United States is very complex and there's a lot of frustrations, but that's something that is something I find most challenging. And the other is time. I think that there's not enough time in the day to support. And the last issue that I have, I think, is uh, setting boundaries. I think when you choose a human services role, you it's and it's innate. You know, you don't just choose to be a, a therapist to be a therapist. You know, a lot of us have had specific experiences in our lives that drive us to being a part of um, this workforce. And sometimes it's really difficult not to take those cases home. And wh- when things go wrong it's tough and, and it's, and we're all impacted by it. And I think that when you're, you know, showing you that you're human too, and you're, you know, I know people say it's not appropriate, but sometimes when you're crying too, when something happens to your patient, that doesn't go well. And I think that that's something that's really difficult is to set boundaries.
0: Definitely. And you articulated it so well that when you're doing such meaningful work, there come the challenges of, that emotion is so strong in your role that also then how do you make sure it just stays in the fulfillment area and try to protect yourself along with the challenges of the work you're doing is so complex that it do- you don't always have the resources given the nature of the system you're working in. So pros and cons, and I'm glad you highlighted both, that yes. even <laughs> just one or the other, like every job has them both. And so from this role, what are the opportunities for you to move up? Mm-hmm. So this is actually it's
1: very funny, and this is I think that there's a you know things are meant to be a certain way because I I think that us meeting during this time is is a great part because it's a um, I'm in the space in my role where I can either go more program management or I could head more clinical, so I have opportunities where I can continue moving forward with this programming, do more of that program management work, which includes more of logistics. Um, really just taking this position and running with it and really trying to make it bigger and what that would look like would be expanding into other hospitals with you know within Northwell or it would be kind of um expanding it with different neurosurgeons. And then in the other space where I'm I'm wondering, do I want to do more clinical work, which would be um you know traditional psychotherapy or do I want to take another role? So I'm actually In that limbo right now, where I have opportunities to become a senior social worker in an outpatient office and that would be completely different, it would be for a different um, subset of uh, support and not in the neurosurgery world. And then I could do private practice. So as clinical social workers, and I would, it's based on your state, but what you would do is you get your master's in social work. And then um, a couple of years later, you, you can get your clinical licensure. Those are both two different state licensures. And then you have the opportunity to be a direct psychotherapist practitioner. So no one's over you. Um, so then I could do that, or I can go more of the administrative route. I don't know, but I think... What I want to share with everyone is that's what the blessing is to have those options. I think the potentially um, changed paths. I've been in the hospital for about six years. I think COVID has really impacted all of us. But the positive about it is it really was an incredible challenge and has shaped me as a clinician. But I think that there are opportunities for growth elsewhere. So really to highlight it. know there are managerial positions and you can kind of just move forward wherever you want but i would you know my advice to anyone listening would be to start as that frontline worker and i think working the front lines especially in this field is really helpful and then you can kind of move forward because you can do anything (laughs) if you're in that front of the forefront of the hospital system so really think about it. If your dream is to be a therapist and you're thinking of going into psychology even, because again, they all meld pretty closely, mental health counselors, social workers, family therapists, um, psychology, even psychiatry, you really want to be hands-on, get your hands dirty because you can go anywhere. And I think that's what I'm excited about is there are so many options. Yeah. I just don't know what I want to do yet.
0: <laughs> well, that's the beauty of it. And you're. that's a big part of this whole platform is trying to explain that there are a lot of options and so Mm -hmm. you can try one you explore and like you said a unique aspect of this role is I think a lot of roles are there's one option above and there's set criteria of okay you go from this next step whereas you have this tree branch of different spaces that you can move into and move between if you try going into maybe more of a psychology role at a hospital you can then switch to the private practice of it and so, moving between—you don't have to know, as you said—you can try and then explore. But having options is really important. Starting with the trenches, getting that hands-on experience that will prepare you for a variety of things is a great,
1: <laughs> absolutely. And I and you know, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's it's something that I never even imagined working in this department. And I know this is something that we wanted to, to talk about. I said, I don't wanna be in the hospital. I don't wanna do social work at a hospital. And when I heard about this role, it was so different. I said, I, administration? I said, why did I become a social worker to work in administration? And you really don't realize and taking that leap of faith and saying, you know what? I mean, I was fresh out of graduate school. I was a year into my career. I, I was very nervous. I was comfortable working in the, at the homeless shelter. And to take that switch really has made me a better therapist without even realizing because I don't have a traditional therapy role. And that's something to always think is sometimes taking those little risks where you said, I don't want to do this, do it for six months, do it for a year, because you never know where it's going to lead you
0: in your you're career. You're gaining experience, no matter what you're also probably learning what you do and you don't want, which Correct. that was a perfect segue because now going back into sort of you didn't think originally you were interested in this role and now you're super grateful for the opportunities it's given you can you talk about starting with your training becoming a social worker what were the major steps that led you to this role and have guided what you do and you don't want sure absolutely so
1: i initially um got my bachelor's in so social work, not communications, by the way, bachelor's in social work. And, <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> All similar. Um, and then so I got my four-year bachelor's. And then I thought to myself, what do I want to do? And I had a you know personal experience, um, having a sick parent. And I said, you know, how can I support people who have gone through similar experiences than me? And that's when I went into the master's program. So regarding education, you can get your bachelor's in anything you want, Mm -hmm. and then you can get your master's in social work for two years. What I did was an advanced standing program. So I did bachelor's to master's. You sustain a certain GPA, and then you get to do a year program of master's degree. So if anyone wants to work their little behinds off, it's helpful because college is expensive, as we all know. So it's a year program instead of two. So it's a little plug for everyone. Um, (laughs) And then you do a one year, two year program. And I um, did the one year and then I had a internship at a school for girls with emotional disturbances. I took all of my classes. And then once you graduate from your master's degree, get licensed so I recommend everyone to get licensed of course it's really hard to get positions without having that licensure in social work Um, so you get that LMSW and then a couple of years later you get more education uh, lots and lots of clinical hours and supervision from someone who is a clinical social worker a psychologist or a MD Um, and then they um, help support you then you take another test and then you can get your LCSW. So for me, I did that, the um, internship. And then I went into the homeless shelter and that was doing case management. And then I said, what should I do with myself? And, you know, again, I I loved the homeless shelter. It was really difficult. If anyone, again, wants to get into their career as a social worker or therapist, work at a shelter, um, it's really mind opening being, you know, I was 22 years old and trying to, uh, find resources for people to find housing and jobs. And it was definitely an eye-opening experience and it, and humbling, um, because we, we go into these careers, thinking we can save all. And sometimes we have to meet people where they're at. Yeah. And then I got the opportunity for, um, this position at North Shore University Hospital on Long Island. And I said, why not? Let's try. And then again, I was able to get my supervision from a social worker while I was working. So I was get to become an LCSW. So again, utilize your resources because I said, Oh, is there someone who can um, supervise me? And then I just spent that time getting supervision while working full time. And it led me to get that promotion from my traditional coordinator rounding on the floors, making sure everyone's having a good experience. And then I, during that time I was gaining my, you know, psychotherapeutic understanding on how to support our patients and families. And then I kind of just spoke to one of the high ups in the hospital and said, let's, you know, what do you think about this type of position? He mentioned it to me that we needed support. And then you do, you know, so I'm kind of going on a tangent, but the point is, it's like, ask, ask, if you want something, ask for it and show that you could do it. So again, started from that bachelor's in social work to the master's getting that um the clinical experience but then while doing so I'm thinking what do I want you know I want to move up in this position I want to do more so that's where it brought me to that I took like I went a little off but that's
0: kind no, of I was, <laughs> <week. It> was <laughs> exactly what I was looking for because there's so many rich points within that one of just how the experience works I think is really eye-opening for people in terms of the amount of time that it takes, the different steps with the licensure and mm-hmm. having to get those clinical hours, the are big factors. But then also hearing you talk about how you were proactive and how other people can seek out opportunities instead of just necessarily waiting for them to come or going the traditional route. You instead did it in one year, saving time and money there. You found how to get your clinical hours. So that's a call to other people to be as proactive. And I think within that, Do you have advice for people of when you are, whether you're exploring or you're in a role on that idea of being proactive? Do you have advice for how to approach conversations, asking for something you want?
1: Absolutely. So the first thing I would say is before asking anything, network with everybody. You never know who you're going to want to work with in the future. So I think that always networking from any part, any part of the multidisciplinary team even if you don't think that person may be able to help you one day you never know so I think that's the first thing I was really big on making sure that I knew everyone everyone knew me everyone knew my role and i a little bit harder but when someone says jump you say how high like especially when you're new in your field you don't want to be staying under the radar yes set your boundaries but really want to communicate with everyone regarding difficult conversations you know I think from even like a female perspective, it's really difficult, I think, to feel empowered to ask for more. I think, you know, lucky for me, I'm not in a male dominated field, but I think a lot of times, you know, you want to feel empowered. Like I can get those really high executive positions and sometimes we have to like fight a little harder, but always be confident. And as long as you sound articulate and come with like I mean don't do a powerpoint or anything but you know come with those reasons of like I've done xyz in this past year Mm -hmm. and this is why I'm looking for say more money a different position I think that it's always good to exude that confidence but to have some type of like backing to why you deserve this and you may get a no I've gotten no's in the past of hey I got my lc can I have an extra x amount of money and it was like Nope, it's not in the budget, but it doesn't hurt to ask. I really encourage, and that's something that I do wish I did earlier in my career, is to have that confidence to know that I could ask, and it does not hurt to ask, and to show your interest in moving forward. So that's my advice. Network with everyone under the sun. This is your time to meet everyone, because I think if people know your enthusiasm, people want to know, you know, learn from other people. I've gone to our CFO and said, I want to hear more about what you do and, you know, your ins and outs. I think that you really just try to meet with as many people as possible because you never know what opportunities can come up.
0: And on that point, can you elaborate some specific skills around networking? Because I think a lot of times it gets referenced as you should network and people Mm -hmm. think of it as when they want a job, they go to someone and they're trying to get a specific job. Can you break down as you're describing it, what that can look like when you already (laughs) have a job? Yes, absolutely. So
1: this is like, it's, it's more simplistic than you think because I'm not the kind of person who goes to these big networking meetings or these conferences of all these people. I am going to say hello to security in the morning and be like, hey, How are you? What's going on? Uh, You know, and ask something personal. I think regarding this whole networking mindset, it comes to be so professional, but even the simplistic example of talking to someone from security, which is, you know, a tiny, tiny example, it's being present and showing who you are. So wherever job you're in, say hello to the executive, say hello to someone who's um, like environmental services. Like, you know, it could be any type of position, no no one is less than you and you're, you know, not better than this person. No one's above you. You're, you know what I'm saying? Like you need to show your brand and that's as simple as saying hello to everyone. So for me, I can only speak for myself. Like I was able to network by really utilizing my personality. Even if you're not an outgoing person, say hi to everyone. Ask someone to go eat to lunch with someone like, you know, like, I think that it's, it's something that you don't realize, even your friends, like you can network with your, with your friends, but like, tell me about your job. Let me learn. So again, you don't need to be going to all these big meetings of, you know, like these, I don't I forgot what they're even called, like the um, the, like, the networking conferences. You don't have to just start talking to other people and getting to know others. So again, it can, it's really simple. And that's what I did for years like I just said hi to every single person with a smile and that's how I was able to meet people and regarding meetings I mean it's 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 I think it's a little stressful at first but I don't think that we forget like, we sometimes forget that even these high up executives are human too so if you just say hey like Can we meet for 10 minutes and talk? I know it's like, that sounds terrifying, but remember that everyone's human and everyone started at the bottom as well.
0: So great way of reframing both of those situations of one, making that ask and advocating for yourself, come prepared. Your no is the worst, usually that can happen. And so that's okay. You learn something from it. And then also with the networking, such a helpful way of describing it apart from the usual thrown around term, which I think out of context can get a little confusing and intimidating. You really humanizing that goal of just make a connection with the goal of learning from someone and about them really makes it more feasible to do. So any other general career advice, whether it's around leadership or boundaries or just things you learn? Any other final points?
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm taking this actually from the leadership retreat I went to last week, humor. So I really didn't recognize the emphasis on humor. And which was, it was very interesting. This leadership conference was for uh, nursing leaders and I was lucky to go um, from a patient and customer experience standpoint. And we did this workshop about laughter and utilizing laughter yoga. So it, it's it's something that, you know, definitely Google it if you uh, are able to, and you're just kind of like looking at the person, you just start laughing. And the idea is to kind of just like release those endorphins because over time, even the fake laughter can help support you. And the way that they tied it into leadership is they were saying that there's a lot of statistics that show that there's higher um, employee satisfaction when they have a leader who utilizes humor. So I've had experiences having leaders who aren't fun and festive. They don't like being happy. And again, that's their, you know, that that might be their personality, but I've noticed that what I want to be as I continue to grow in my career is being someone who is open and humble and utilizes Um, that happy personality and that humor to not intimidate people. And that's, you know, especially people new in their career listening. It's like, what would you want Mm. as a leader? And I thought that that humor was was so interesting to me, and something I definitely am going to take because you want someone who's going to be open and have you know, again, it's all about the humanistic standpoint. So that was something that I, I found really really cool. So anyone, look it up. This laughter yoga and humor in leaders is something that's interesting to me. And the other thing is is don't hold back. Like if you want something, try to take it. I know it seems. Easier said than done. But I think that a lot of us have a lot of like lack of confidence in ourselves and, you know, look in the mirror and it's that, it's that, uh, that complex where you think it's the, um, oh my goodness, I forgot what it's called. Imposter. Syndrome. Imposter. Thank you. Imposter syndrome. Thank you. <laughs> God. What, what I do before interviews, and again, you may think it's silly, but I really recommend it. I look in the mirror and I say, you have this job. You deserve this. You are here because you worked your butt off and you've got this. And I think a lot of times we need to have, you know, a talk with ourselves that we're more capable than we think we are. And the final thing is, because I can go all day, you're allowed to have bad days. And having a bad day is not always a reflection on you. And I think that sometimes we forget that we're allowed to be human and we want to be perfect all the time in our careers. And and sometimes, you know, rejection is redirection. If someone says no to you, you know, there's situations where, I haven't gotten the position. And then a few months later, I end up getting a higher position. And it's like, well, you know, high opportunity, like, you know, get opportunities for something, you say, oh, wow, they know that's incredible. So remember, just because you're rejected from something doesn't mean that something better isn't going to come. You know, this is a really difficult environment regarding, you know, getting the perfect career. And sometimes those careers that you're not the happiest in, in those, in those positions, you may, get something way better from having those really, really difficult situations that you're working in.
0: Some incredible (laughs) points all around and throughout this whole interview, learning about what you do. I think that advice is super helpful for people. And the key is really you just humanize all the elements of the stressful career process. So thank you so much for all of that.
1: Of course.